16-year-old Michaela Constanzo left school after track practice, but never made it home. Two days later, search teams make a haunting discovery. As investigators look deeper into Michaela's life, they discover what at first seems to be a typical teenage drama. However, the reality of the situation is far darker than anyone could have ever suspected. It's just, it makes me so scared because I mm -hmm. haven't seen her, you know, since I went to Elko yesterday. It makes me really nervous because I haven't seen her and I want to make sure she's okay. I think she's not safe because if she was, then she'd be like, she'd notify other people. Do you have any questions for me? Yeah, find her, please. The truth of what actually happened to Michaela is only revealed in a bizarre twist when a suspect unknowingly implicates themselves without realizing they're being recorded. I did the way just for like a split second and then heard like a loud set on the car. So I just got out to see what happened. I was just kind of freaking out and everything from there on out was kind of a blow to me. Celia Constanzo begins to feel uneasy when her 16-year-old daughter Michaela doesn't message her after finishing track practice at school. As hours pass without any communication from Michaela, Celia leaves work early and heads to West Wendover High School to pick up her daughter but finds the campus empty. Scared and anxious, Celia hurries home, hoping to find Michaela there. But to her dismay, she finds only her younger daughter and no sign that Michaela has made it home. Overwhelmed by panic, she confides in her other two daughters about Michaela being missing. Both sisters immediately join their mother's frantic attempts to reach out to their sister, but hear nothing back from her. As the news of Michaela's sudden disappearance quickly spreads within the community, numerous students from West Wendover High School join search parties to look for their missing friend. From her favorite spots in the neighborhood to messaging and calling her, Michaela's friends and family try everything but fail to track her down. As night falls, Celia alerts the police about her daughter's disappearance. Having encountered several cases of rebellious teenagers running away from home for a while, the police decide to wait until the following morning to see if Michaela shows up at school. But when their assumption is proven wrong the next day, it reinforces Celia's belief that something horrible happened to her daughter. The police immediately begin the investigation by running a thorough background check on the family. They discover that everything was well at home and that 16-year-old Michaela was raised in a loving family alongside her two sisters, Kim and Alicia. Renowned for her athletic prowess, she stood out as one of West Wendover High School's top athletes and possessed a natural talent for writing. In an exclusive interview with Iwu, one of Michaela's closest friends talked to us about their friendship and her talents. I guess the way our friendship like developed was in middle school. We were kind of in the same like friend group in elementary school. And actually, if I'm being completely honest, I thought she was very annoying <laughs> in, uh, in elementary school. I, I, she, I was not her biggest fan. Um, she kept making fun of me for being short. And I was like, what are you talking about? You're shorter than me. In middle school, we had the opportunity to do a project together. Mickey and I got paired up together and 
we very quickly realized that I was the crafty one and she was the good writer and I did not like writing and she did not like crafting. I have, I think the first chapter or two of the book that she shared with me. Amazing writer. I remember she shared this with me and it had to have been in maybe sophomore year of high school. I'm the type of person who like is very picky about like grammar and spelling and things. So of course I'm reading it and I'm like, uh, this is spelled wrong and um, you need a period here. <laughs> but like at the same time, I was so impressed with her ability to write this, this book. And I actually sat down and read it a few weeks ago. At school, she'd been dating her classmate, Javier Trujillo, for a year and a half. And yet Javier had only shown up at the search parties looking for Michaela much later in the night. Investigators interview Javier to ask his whereabouts from the day of Michaela's disappearance and establish a timeline of events. The following footage has been analyzed by a qualified team, including a licensed professional counselor and a licensed attorney. What does she go by? What's her nickname? Um, like usually Mickey. Mickey? Yeah. Are you your, her boyfriends? Is what I'm understanding? Yeah, we've been like on and off for like a year and a half. Yesterday, you seen her yesterday, right? Yeah, I, the last time I saw her was during lunch. What was going on during lunch? What, what were you guys? Well, usually like if we have good grades, we get an hour for lunch. And our lunch starts from 11.30 to 12.30. So <laughs> we have an hour. And we were feeling hungry. And so I wanted to go to the taco truck. And she's like, okay. And we went, we got burritos, we came back to school, we ate them. And after a while, like, she went with her friends and I went with mine. That was the last time you seen her? Yeah, that was the last time I saw her. No, we walked down the hall together after lunch. And after that, I never saw her again. Okay. Because we have split classes after that. It's interesting that as he says that was the last time he saw her, he's shaking his head no. As he says it, he realizes that he made a mistake. This is a brain-body mismatch, much like you see in a person who is being deceptive, but the difference is he corrects himself. Typically, verbal and nonverbal communication matches, but when the brain is thinking one thing and the mouth says another, the nonverbal and verbal will misalign or mismatch altogether. When this occurs in individuals who have something to hide, they won't correct it, but when it's just a case of nerves or talking without really thinking, then the individual will often go back and correct themselves, as Javier does here. And you, what did you do after school? After school, I picked up my brother and then went home right away to go and change. What time was that? Like around like 3.40, 3.35. Okay, and then what did you do after that? After that, I went to work. What time did you go to work? Um, well, I, got, I left to work like at 3.45, got there like about 3.50, 3.51 and clocked in like at 3.55, and I didn't get out to like 10. Did you t text her or talk to her? Yeah, no, it was because I didn't know something was going on. And okay. No, but yeah, like I was saying, I was working and I guess Michaela's mom went to my house and she told my brother, have you seen Michaela? Like, is she with your brother? And my brother told her, no, my brother's been working ever since out of school. And he went, he went looking for me at work and he goes, hey, is anything like, wrong with Michaela, she right because her mom went looking for her at her house and I go, yeah, everything's fine, why? And she goes, I don't know, like, I just have a feeling something's wrong. And then he left and I go, like about an hour or an hour and 30 minutes later, Michaela's mom came and, did you know a police officer named Kat? Mm -hmm. Or she goes by that? Yeah, they came looking for me and they're like, hey, like, have you been hanging out with Michaela? Like, did you hang out with her after school? And I told her, no, why? And then they told me, because she's been missing after track practice, they didn't know where she was, and 
Okay. I told him no that I went I came to work like right at three forty five and I didn't see her. Do you know anybody she would have been with after track practice? Well, usually she gets rides from track practice or else she goes home walking. And if she gets a ride home, she gets one from and then if she goes walking home, she goes to the back because our school has a football field in the back and there's a little shortcut through the right and she goes in through there and she just there's this little cova sack and she goes through there and just follows the sidewalk. Like I don't I don't understand if she went walking home because it was kind of cold and I don't know why she do that because usually the one that gives her like rides. She's the one that gives him the most rides. Is anybody else that has said they seen her after school last night? Um, no, they, um, just she saw her too in the locker room. When just in the locker done, room. Yeah. Anybody see her after outside after she left? Anybody you know? Javier's statement that he was at work while the town started looking for Michaela established a strong alibi for his whereabouts, but it was still something that the police needed to verify. As he continues to describe his relationship with Michaela, Javier reveals new details about Michaela's relationship with her mother. So, but nobody's been talking to school that they've seen her after school, no, uh, like outside. After, after track and things? No, they just said they saw her, like, right one track and the... She, how's she been acting lately? I don't know. She's been acting pretty fine. Like, if she's if something was wrong, she'd vent. She's not one of those girls that hides her feelings, like, like puts her emotions in her. She has to say what's going on. And if something was going on with her, like, at home, she'd be telling, like, I want to go, like, I want to get out of here. I want to go somewhere else. I'm tired of my mom. And so everything's been fucking, good, huh? Yeah. And we haven't had any problems since, like... So what have you been hearing? What do you think's been going on? Do you think that she... Mm-hmm. I think, like, I don't know. But she ran away before? Yeah, she ran away once, but... When was this? It was, I'm not sure, I think, last year. But when she ran away, she notified me and her friends. She, she, she left me a voicemail to her friends right next door to me. And she left me a voicemail and she goes, Hey, I'm running away from home because I feel like pressured right now. Like, my mom and DJ are screaming at me. So if you're, like, looking for me, I'll be at... And... That was the end of that? Yeah, that was the end of the voicemail. And then um, in the morning, after that, I was feeding my dogs and I saw her with So now it's like, okay, everything's okay. Knowing she'd run away before reassured officers that this was likely what had happened again. But she hadn't ever gone away for this long without informing anyone. What had changed this time? Do you have any questions for me? I'm like, what have you guys like been trying to do? Like, do you guys have like airplanes, people, like search parties and things like yeah, that? Yeah, we're we're getting another search party ready right now. We're gonna go out. We do have airplanes that we're up all day looking today. Yesterday um, I tried getting an EO from work because I was scared and yeah, everybody was out looking last yeah. night and it wasn't very organized, but people were looking and yeah. We're trying to get everybody on the same page now. So yeah, we're we're doing I'd like to say we can do more, but we're doing everything we can right now. I got out at 10 yesterday, went looking for her, didn't finish until like 2. I went to Ford Tunnel to the back of the school, where like 3 miles and I couldn't find anything. I just think that she's like in someone's house or... You think somebody's house? Yeah. You think she's safe in somebody's house or do you just... I think she's not safe because if she was, then she'd be like... She'd notify other people. She'd call or something? Yeah, she'd come like, don't tell my mom that I'm over here with this friend. After collecting a statement from his brother, the investigators are able to establish a solid alibi for Javier. This firmly established that Javier played no part in Michaela's vanishing and eliminated any suspicion surrounding his involvement. 
Moreover, while Michaela's family admits to events in the past when she ran away, they insist that she was always responsible and would always inform her siblings about her whereabouts. Before conducting interviews with any of Michaela's friends, the investigators analyze her phone records to speak with individuals whose numbers were recorded in the calls and messages on the day she disappeared. One particular number stands out in the list. This individual had made repeated efforts to reach out to Michaela through a series of text messages and phone calls on the day she disappeared. The number belonged to one of Michaela's schoolmates, Cody Patton. As the investigators dig into Cody Patton's history, they find out that his relationship with Michaela traces all the way back to their childhood and the apartment complex where Michaela lived with her family. Since the complex is managed by Cody's parents, he spent much of his childhood there and grew up with Michaela. Over the years, they developed a deep friendship, but it drifted apart in high school. As they delve deeper into Cody's background, they uncover that he is quite popular and a top player in the school's baseball team, but he also carried a bad reputation for dating many girls at school and reportedly cheating on them. However, it appeared that in recent years, Cody, at the age of 18, had ultimately found a steady and enduring relationship with the 18-year-old Tony Fratto, a fellow student at West Wendover High School. Despite the skepticism of many schoolmates about this odd pair, given Cody's popularity and Tony's reserved demeanor, the couple remained unfazed and deeply in love with each other. In fact, Cody had been living with Tony and her family after he had a major fallout with his father a few months ago. He actually proposed marriage to Tony soon after, leading to their engagement, which left the school community shocked by the unexpected news. Yet there's a certain detail that raises suspicions. Cody had a brief relationship with Michaela before eventually committing to Tony. This was years ago, and both had mutually parted ways, so why had he then sent messages to Michaela and called her? The investigators bring Cody in for an interview and ask him about his whereabouts on the day of Michaela's disappearance. Yesterday about 3 o'clock, what time did school get out? 3.30. 3.30. About 3.30, what were you doing about 3.30? Cody clearly looks nervous, but it's not clear if the investigators did any rapport building with him, which would help make him feel more comfortable. Cody is fidgeting and picking at his thumbs and fingers, which is an anxiety response. But you would expect this if the investigators went into immediate questioning with no rapport building or general questions first. I went from Mr. Ulamont, my teacher, Mr. Lee. Okay. I went from his class about, I don't know, I'd say about 320 or so. I went to um, welding shop, talked to Lobato. I was in there for a few minutes and I left class, left his class. I can't remember what I did. And I went back and I was talking to him again for a few minutes. Back to Lobato or back to Mr. Back to Lobato. And then at the end of school, I walked out and as I was walking past, I saw him kill and I said hi. I just, I don't know where she said what. Where did you see her at? At her locker. At the locker? On the long hall. Okay. Right, kind of where Lobato's class is. And she goes, what? And I, I stopped and turned around so she knew I was talking to her. And I said, oh, I'm just saying hi. And then she goes, she goes, where were you at? And I pointed and I said, I was in Lobato's class. She goes, oh, okay. And this is what time, do you think? Uh, about 3.30 something. Okay. 32, I don't know. 
And I went outside and I, uh, I left. You left to what? You know. While recounting his day, Cody uses a lot of and then statements. I went to, and then she goes, and I went outside and I, uh, and then. This is generally a red flag, as sometimes people use and then statements when they're intentionally leaving out chunks of their story, as it allows them to jump to the point. Overall, his story is very choppy, and he seems to lose his place and stumble a bit, which is strange for what should be a simple and fairly straightforward day. What were you leaving in? Um, my friend Wendy's car. It's a trailblazer. What color is it? White. That's a white trailblazer? Yeah. Okay. It was probably half brown. It's all dirty. Okay. Why is it all dirty? I have no idea. That's how she gave it to me. Okay. Because I was borrowing it today or yesterday. After describing some of the events of his day, Cody explains why he'd called and messaged Michaela. And I had texted Michaela and asked her if she could help me, no answer. And so I called her and no answer. And she called me back. And I left my phone in the car when I was getting some of the parts and stuff. And then she, uh, I called her back, no answer. So I was like, okay. So I texted her and I said, hey, what are you doing? And she goes, I'm in practice right now. And I said, oh, okay, well, when does it get over? She was about five or so, and I said, okay. And then I uh, was loading up the rest of the stuff, and it was about, I don't know, about four. There is a really long pause in Cody's recollection here, which is a change in his speech pattern so far, given that he has answered everything else fairly quickly. This will no doubt raise red flags about him searching for the right answer versus the honest one. If he'd taken this long earlier when it would have been innocuous, then we might just assume he has a memory issue with time. But he didn't. Note the other times Cody takes long pauses. About that time, uh, Michaela called me back and uh, I called her again because I didn't have a phone. And then she answered and she, I said, so can you come help me? And she goes, give me just a second. I just got in the locker room. I'll get ready. And I'll call you back. I said, okay. I don't know how long later. And then she called me back. Was that on a text or from the phone? Uh, phone. Okay. And uh, so she called me back. I don't know how long later. And then uh, I, uh, I said, can you come help me? And she goes, I can't. I have to go home. I have to go to the, uh, to go work out or something at 830. And I don't know. And her mom was picking her up at five. Okay. And I said, okay, no worries. And I, I asked her if she was okay because she had a weird tone of voice, kind of like an indifferent, like, I don't know, sad, mad type. And I was like, are you all right? And she goes, yeah, I'm just fine. I was like, okay, no worries. And I, I hung up and continued to get stuff done. Cody continues to narrate the rest of his evening, informing the detectives that he picked up Tony from a golf course at 7, and then they got drinks from a McDonald's drive through Soon after, both had been informed by their classmates about Michaela's disappearance, and they joined the search parties immediately. However, Cody reveals one shocking detail that reverses everything that the investigators had found out so far. I left, and then... So you didn't see her at all? Uh, I saw her after school. That was it. By the walk? Yeah. Other than that, you didn't see her at all? I saw her leave the school when I left. When did you leave? 
Five thirty. You seen her leave the school? Yeah. Where was she leaving from? Um, she was going out the front. She was standing there talking to somebody when I left. And then there was a Mexican kid and one of the. I'm sure you were. It was that it was her going out the front? Positive. As he says positive, Cody slightly shakes his head. Just like Javier, this could be a sign of nervousness at the situation, not deception. But unlike Javier, Cody's blink rate also increases. It's positively her. Yeah. What's she wearing, you know? Um, jeans and a, and a gray sweater. Okay. Anything else? It's about all I can remember. He's in a gray sweater, and I think... So where were you at when you seen her going up? When I, when I was going up the, I guess you call it the turnpike leaving school, mm-hmm. right there. She was standing... You were driving? Yeah, when I mean, she was standing by the door. And then, um... Uh, yeah. Cody had seen Michaela speak with someone at the school's front door. The investigators continue their line of questioning to get as much information about Michaela and this strange individual who may have played a role in her disappearance. So the first time you seen Michaela was at the lockers. That was approximately what time? Right around, right after school, about 3.32, 3.35. And the last time you seen her was? About 5.30. And that was where? At school. She was with somebody? Just some... I thought it was her boyfriend because it was a short. Her Mexican. boyfriend being Javier. Yeah, I thought it was him, but it's just some short Mexican kid. But everybody said he went to work right after school. So, but you're positive she was out front. Yeah, for sure. What did she have on? You said she had on what jeans? Jeans and a gray sweater. Anything else with her? She had a, a black, like a, a handbag backpack type thing, and it looked like it was either striped or had. You know, I don't know. It was it was either striped or polka dot. I don't know, but it was black. Anything else with it? What color shirt she have on? I couldn't tell. I could just tell she had a big sweater on, a big like gray one, a hoodie style. But other than that, it's about it. As Cody continues to describe everything he'd witnessed, he dishes out further information that raises concerns about Michaela's well-being. That was about 5.30. Yeah. Anything else you can think of that I haven't asked that maybe I should know that you think's relevant? A while a while back, I can't remember exactly how long back. One time she was walking through the hall and she was she looked like she was pretty upset. She wasn't crying or nothing, but you could like her eyes were red and looked like she'd probably been crying or something and as he shares this new detail, Cody shows more signs of his anxiety as he starts to rapidly blink. That day I saw her um, up where the V is at in our front of our school, mm-hmm. where the two walkways are on the left side, talking with our boyfriend and arguing. And then for at least a week, they didn't really say nothing to each other. And then um, at least at school, they didn't. And uh seemed like they're... I guess tense towards each other. What do you think that was? There was a basketball game going on, so I don't know, maybe two, three weeks ago. Maybe, it was probably about three or four weeks ago, actually. Because I just barely. Do you think your boyfriend might have been 
has something to do with this? Is what you're trying to say? Or no, I just just trying to throw, like you said, throw relevant stuff out there. During an interview, investigators pay close attention to how a person behaves, reacts, or responds to questions. They often look for a cluster of behaviors, such as the ones that Cody just displayed by rapidly blinking, swallowing deeply, sniffing, and making a tongue-click noise. The click could be due to him having a dry mouth from anxiety, as that's a normal part of the stress response. A cluster of behaviors can consist of multiple actions or responses that, when taken together, suggest a particular state of mind, such as nervousness or anxiety. A cluster often includes a combination of three or more signs of deception, such as inconsistent statements, avoidance of certain topics, changes in body language, or other indicators that a person may be withholding information or lying. Nonverbal communication cues like facial expressions, gestures, posture, and eye contact are also considered when assessing a cluster of behaviors. It's important to note that the interpretation of a cluster of behavior should take into account the specific circumstances, the individual's baseline behavior, and other factors, such as culture and mental health and context. What might be suspicious behavior in one context may be perfectly normal in another. As well, a cluster of behaviors is also not definitive proof of guilt. Instead, it guides investigators in their decision-making process and can be used to develop additional areas of inquiry or obtain additional evidence. Other than that, what do you think? What's your opinion? Honestly, I hope she has gotten a fight with her boyfriend or mom or something. It's just... It's just a... This quick movement might be the most revealing of all so far, as Cody breaks from his baseline behavior. The idea of baseline behavior refers to the typical or normal behavior of an individual when they are not under stress, lying, or experiencing unusual circumstances. It serves as a reference point that an investigator can compare the person's behavior to during the interrogation. Understanding an individual's baseline behavior is essential in actual decryption of behaviors, because it helps investigators identify potential deviations or anomalies that may suggest deception or discomfort. Up to this point, Cody hasn't moved too much or shown much emotion, but here along with more rapid blinking, Cody rubs at his eyes and pinches his mouth closed, which together all seem to signal that he has some growing anxiety and stress about this subject in particular. At a friend's house or something. Understand. Do you have any questions for me? Yeah, find her, please. Police begin to wonder if they dismissed Javier too soon and meet with him again the same day to verify his whereabouts. When they bring up Cody's name, Javier shares new concerns. They haven't talked for like about three months and it's kind of strange that yesterday she got texts from him and he went up to her and he told her, hey, can you come and help me do something in the welding shop because I need help? And I don't know, I don't know why he'd ask her that. I think he like kind of like, I shouldn't like say stalk, but like. He's been doing that. How long has this been going on that he's been stalking her? No, I don't know. It's because they used to have a relationship before I was with her. And yeah, I don't know. As Javier says this, he does a lip compression, lip licking, a bit of a bigger breath and almost seems to lose his train of thought for a minute. 
This cluster of behaviors could indicate that he has some disdain or dislike for this topic of Cody and Michaela dating previously. Okay. Like, he tries to give her problems, and usually they try to ignore each other. And if they talk, they, like, have attitude towards each other. They get mad right away. While it was evident that the boys didn't get along, confirming their accusations against each other was crucial. To validate the details, investigators visit Javier's workplace to check the surveillance footage, which definitely showed that he had left his workplace at 10 p.m. and had been working consistently until then. Michaela's mother, Celia, also corroborates his statements of her reaching out to him while looking for her daughter. As the investigators find no cause to doubt Javier's intentions, they once again strike his name off the list. To verify Cody's statements, the investigating team schedules an interview with Cody's fiance, Tony Frado, and her statements add an unexpected twist to the case. And then about 5.30, he texted me and said that he was home and he's going to... About what time? About 5.30. Okay, he texted you? You saw that text? I don't. Okay, he texted you and said he was home. Mm-hmm. Right after she answers about no longer having the text message, Tony does some interesting lip compressions and lip licking. Something about that answer seems to have not sat well with her. And he said he was going to work on some of those parts and work on his RC cars and everything. Okay. Said, okay. And then we were texting, we're planning to go do something, get out of the house. And so he came and got me about 7 o'clock from the golf course. That's where they're home meeting. How many times did he text you between 5 and 7? Um, maybe 10, 15 texts. Okay. So at 7 o'clock, what did you guys do? We went and got drinks at McDonald's and then just sat in McDonald's for a little while. Inside and everything. Yeah. And then that's about the time maybe we sat there close to 45 minutes or whatever, mm-hmm. just talking and everything. And that's when we started getting, like, texts and calls and asking if we'd see Michaela. And I said, we haven't seen her at all. And so um, after about, like, five calls or whatever, we're like, okay, something's going on. So we went and drove around to see if we could see her or anything. Can you recount where you drove around? We went over, we started over by the school, kind of um, made our way down to Hanson Storage. Back at the school, Cody was... Texting, calling somebody? Do you know of? I don't know. Did he ask anybody to come help him with anything? I know he was um, gonna or was trying to get a hold of Mickey, but I don't know if she did or not. Cause did he tell you he was trying to get a hold of Mickey? He, yeah, he did tell me that he was trying to get a hold of her, but every time he called or text, she wouldn't reply or didn't answer. What did he want to do? What did he want her with her? I think just to load in the heavy metal or whatever so she could grab one and he could grab the other. But I don't know if that happened. I don't know. It appears that the way that Tony expresses her inward anxiety is through lip compression and licking. This is a red flag that she's hiding something or she knows more than she's letting on, especially following her saying, I don't know. Well, how would you say that you and Mickey get along? Um, we say hi once in a while. We don't really talk. I don't know Mickey very well. Do you really care for her? 
As a person, I don't have anything against her, no. Not only is there an upward inflection in her voice, but Tony avoids answering the question here, while also not outright lying. By saying, as a person, she's completely rephrasing what the detective is saying. She's not admitting that she has a problem with her, but goes around it in a really odd way. The original question was, do you care for her? So Tony has avoided directly saying yes or no. Did her and Cody have a relationship prior to you? Um, I believe so, like a really long time ago. And you don't have any like hard feelings towards her? Or mm -mm. People said you hate her, that's not the case? No, not at all. Even after being asked multiple times, Tony is consistent with the timeline of events. Starting from their visit to McDonald's, their search for Michaela and the subsequent trip to Cody's cousin's place to return his friend's car. Tony substantiates every detail, including the specific locations they scoured while searching for Michaela. Additional members of the search team also support this account, affirming that they witnessed the couple's efforts to locate the missing teenager within the town. The situation looked nothing beyond regular teenage drama, and the investigating team crosses off Cody's name from their suspect list. It's now March 5th, two days since Michaela's sudden disappearance, and the investigators remain empty-handed, devoid of suspects or fresh leads to propel the case forward. Just then, an unexpected twist changes the entire course of the investigation. A distressing phone call reaches the investigators from an employee working at a local mining company in West Wendover. He recounts seeing a set of tire tracks turning into an otherwise desolate patch of the desert while he drove back to West Wendover. He shares that he had followed the tracks into the desert and saw what looked like blood splattered onto the ground and the rocks. Recognizing the gravity of his discovery, he had now called the police to relay this ominous find. In this never-before-seen eerie video, the police arrive at the desert location and quickly uncover the tire tracks, as well as the blood splatters the caller had reported. The shallow grave in the desert confirms their worst fears. As soon as the officers notice human flesh, they call the forensics team to assist them in retrieving the body and the samples. It's Michaela Constanzo. The apparent cause of her death was a profound wound on her throat. Her hands were bound with zip ties. While the zip ties suggested a potential kidnapping, the investigators remain uncertain about who might have had motives to abduct her and why. Their focus pivots to the mine worker who'd originally reported about finding the grave in the desert, but they find no evidence to incriminate him or any suspicious person in the desert who may have been involved. With no leads to verify, the police circle back and request the school to provide their surveillance tapes from the day of Michaela's disappearance in the hopes that they will find something or someone they might have missed. The CCTV footage exposes a disturbing reality that changes everything. In the footage, they see Michaela in the hallway at the end of the day and someone following her. But it isn't her boyfriend Javier, as Cody Patton has suggested. It's Cody himself. 
On the day that Michaela went missing at 5.41 p.m., Cody walks by the school's locker room for the first time. At 5.44 p.m., he exits and re-enters the school from the back door and goes back to the locker room. Ten minutes later, he walks by the locker room and continues to pace there. At 6 p.m., investigators watch Michaela leave the school, and shockingly, Cody follows her. During his interview with the investigators, Cody claimed that he witnessed Michaela along with another person at the school's entrance. However, the surveillance video contradicted this statement entirely. Instead, the investigating team see Cody exiting the school through the back door at 6 p.m., which differs from his earlier statement of leaving school at 5.30 p.m. The investigators speak with Cody's parents to find out more about their son's whereabouts. They confirm meeting Cody and their family that night, but do flag their concerns about his friendship with the person who lent their car to Cody. Tell us about her or what you know about her, if you don't mind. She's creepy. Yeah. She's what? Creepy. <laughs> creepy. She used to be their dance teacher before they were in kindergarten. Both of our kids. When, yeah, when they were four years, no, eight, four, four, yeah. Does she regularly let other, the kids drive her vehicle? Yeah, all, all kids. Everybody. Remarks from Cody's parents had sparked significant apprehension regarding this person, who frequently allowed teenagers like Cody to use her car. To gather additional information about who had access to the car and their locations on the day of Michaela's murder, the investigating team interviews this individual. So when, when was the next time you had contact with Cody, whether it was in like person or calls or texts or... Um, texting throughout the day. You know, um, we were going to go to Metro after school. Um, he said, no, I've got to hurry and get this stuff done. And then about quarter to six, I'm like, I need my car. I'm not done yet. That's all you would say? Yeah. What else do you think you text back and forth? Just hurry. I need my car. You know, nothing. And he didn't seem irritated or anything. It was just normal conversation. And when you when you let him have the car, you say about noon. What condition was it in? I mean, it... well, the night before there there was that flash rainstorm, and I was at Smith's, and so it basically washed everything off that was there before. Mm -hmm. You know, so it was it was clean. From the rain. When you got it back, what did it look it like? It was dusty. The police find out that Cody had been the only person she'd lent her car to on that day. Adding to the intrigue, a distinctive detail about the car emerges, one that sharply contrasts with Cody's narrative. This individual recalls that the car was covered in dust when Cody returned it, while Cody had stated that he'd received the vehicle in that condition. However, Tony contradicted both of these accounts in her statement. So you seen the vehicle at about 450. Yeah. What condition was the vehicle in? Was it clean? Yeah. Was it dirty? Not that I noticed. I mean, there was a few, like, dirt or whatever from, like, the metal because it had been laying on the ground or whatever. Hmm. But that's... The outside wasn't noticed. dusty? There was no uh, mud on it? or Not that I noticed, no. Okay. When he got you at 7 o'clock, did you see the vehicle? Yeah. What did it look like then? The same. It wasn't dusty or anything? Mm -mm. The varying descriptions concerning the car's condition raised serious doubts about Cody's involvement in the crime. In pursuit of substantial evidence against him, the team takes custody of the vehicle for analysis and speaks with his classmates, friends, and teachers. 
In the course of these never-heard-before interviews, the investigators come across astounding testimonies regarding Cody's attitude, as well as an unsettling rumor that had been making its way around the school. He is a person who is aggressive and he does have a temper. And they were telling me earlier that I think she's afraid of him because I think he does abuse her. I'm pretty sure he's hit her before. And but she's never told you that? No. Did but you? they said they, they told me they had tape of, her, of him choking her against the wall. So when you say he has a temper, have you ever seen the temper? I haven't personally. I don't think I've seen him like be angry and storm off, but I've never seen him like take it out on anybody. I just seen him like disappear. Shockingly, beneath the facade of a happy couple, Cody and Tony were grappling with issues. Their seemingly harmonious relationship exposed a dark side when a heated argument between them in the school's locker room was caught on surveillance camera an incident that a staff member at the school further elaborated on in his interview with the police. Anything we haven't asked about we should know about? I don't know. Cody seemed, um, just after the semester ended, which was in January, I mean, he seemed a little distracted that he got kicked out of my weights class. And I don't know if things in his life are just kind of piling up or, or what, but he would show up in the gym every now and again, and I would kick him out. And that's kind of where it, this all started when I didn't even really ask him why he was here at the school that night, because... Our relationship's kind of confrontational sometimes, and so I just really didn't want to get in, involved in that in that area of it. And, mm -hmm. and so that's why that night I wish, you know, I, I look back now and wished I would have said something to him, but, I mean, he just didn't really act like he was mad at anything that night. I mean, he put the keys in his mouth, you know, and he, I mean, he did his, I, mean, I still see it this, to this day, you know, how he looked, but, I mean, it just didn't look like he was mad at something or somebody. Mm -hmm. and of course, I'm not sure what happened from that point on, but... Why did he get kicked out of the class? Because of the relationship between him and Tony turned bad, so to speak, and so they wanted to keep them separated as much as possible. So Tony was in the weights class? Yes, she was with him that semester. And so what class did he go to? It was a credit recovery class to try and see if he can get graduated this school year because he had some classes that he had failed in the past that he was trying to make up credit for. Okay. And when you say the relationship between them went bad, what do you mean? Um, he got a little, I'm not sure all the details because, of course, they don't they don't disclose too much to us, but apparently the, the administration was just trying to keep those two apart as much as possible because um, I guess he got a little bit of violent toward her a couple of times. Okay, and so but you never saw any problems? Not between those two, no. Clearly, Cody had anger issues and often resorted to violence. One of his friends had tried to warn Michaela about it as well. The last guy just asked Michaela, is, like, is Cody trying to talk to you again? He's like, she said, yeah. And I'm like, well, you probably shouldn't. It's bad news. He's, you know, he's his girlfriend. You know, that basically is what I said. Mm -hmm. And that's about it. <laughs> okay. So you were, you and her were texting back and forth? Um, for a little bit. Okay. Did she mention to you what he was texting her about no, or, I, or what she was talking? No. She said she told him to leave him alone before. Her. That's what she said to me. To you? She told you that? Okay. Uh, you told Michaela that... He's bad news, but he's just... Okay. Well, why is that? Just because, I don't know, he's kind of two-faced, I guess that's uh -huh. the best way to put it. Okay. The situation became increasingly alarming when both this friend and his mother reported similar instances of violence and manipulation involving Cody. I think I was talking to one of the other teachers or talking to the vice principal, and it was about certain behaviors with Cody. I had huge issues because it had finally gotten to a point where he quit hanging out with him because he was, like, doing ridiculous stuff, things that are, like, maniacal. Burned my son with a piece of metal and then tried to play it off like it was an accident. In school? 
No. <laughs> his parents own a shop, and we were soldering a battery cable together. And he's like, "Is this hot?" Touch me with it. Burn mm. me out. Like, no, it's not hot. Nice. These disturbing descriptions show some potential signs of serious mental health struggles along the lines of conduct disorder and its adult relative, antisocial personality disorder. Frequent outbursts of anger and aggression when faced with obstacles or not getting their way, even in minor situations, can be a big cause for concern. The red flag is when this behavior goes beyond occasional frustration. Deliberately causing harm to others, whether physically or emotionally, is another significant red flag, as well as an apparent absence of empathy or remorse for the pain and suffering they inflict. A tendency to lie, manipulate, or deceive others for personal gain is also common in individuals with antisocial personality disorder. So is struggling to form and maintain healthy relationships due to their aggressive and manipulative behaviors. Many individuals with conduct disorder display these behaviors in childhood or adolescence, identifying such issues at a young age as essential for intervention and treatment. If these behaviors persist into adulthood and are not simply a phase of adolescence, it may suggest a more serious underlying condition, like antisocial personality disorder. Well, and then he took his phone one night because his oh. phone had broken. This is Let me tell this you, was it for me. I was like, mm-mm. Um, what happened was I went to their house. I've been in their house like two, three times. And I was there once, and I was in their living room the entire time. I came back out, and uh, they told his older brother that I'm not allowed to hang out there anymore. And I was like, what did I do? And apparently it's because I stole money. And I was like, I don't even know what money you're talking about. And when we were in class one day, because he came in to see Tony, he's like, because this is his old phone. And he's like, um, can, I, can I see more? He's just looking at it and whatnot. He's like, when are you going to give me 30 bucks for this? I'm like, you're just letting me, you said you're letting me borrow it, you know, until he got mine. And I'm, uh, he took it, and I was on the computer playing guitar. This was my guitar class. And he apparently sent a text to himself saying that I I basically admitted for it, like that I stole the money. And I was like, really? Are you kidding me? And it was his older brother that said, hey, that he borrowed your phone anytime recently? And was like, had to think about it, yeah. And he's like, oh, because check it out. This is what he did. It's like, it doesn't seem like you texting. He's like, I don't know how you text, you know. Yeah, my son may be a lot of things, but he is not with me. Have you ever seen Cody Violent? You said you and him almost got into it. Oh, a couple times we have. Um, I almost got in a fight with him three or four times. Mm-hmm. Um, one time I was at the shop. He threw a blow at me, and then I went underneath him. I picked him up, slammed him on the ground. Mm-hmm. I was like, you need to knock your stuff off before I kick you, but... Mm-hmm. <laughs> The last most re- recent circumstances, they were out, me and a couple of my buddies were out and they were all drinking and whatnot. And I was mm-hmm. like, you know, I'm stop- I'm not doing this because they're acting ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, I'm not getting in trouble. And so I said, I'm walking home. And it was like 10 or 11 at night. And I was like, I'm walking home. And he's like, why are you being? And he's going off. He's all mad because I'm leaving. And he's getting ready yelling in each other's faces. And I'm like, I'm sick of your crap. And we're sitting there. And then he comes up. He's like, well, I'm sorry. And he just walks off. That was the last time. And I was like, I'm not dealing with this crap no more. Because of his controlling and erratic behavior, Cody had lost many friends. But had his anger pushed him to do something unthinkable this time? To find out more about what transpired between Cody and Michaela and how their relationship changed after they broke up, the investigators talked to her best friend. You were at track practice with her on the third? Okay. Was there anything unusual going on? The only thing that Kayla was talking about was she had her phone with her and she was saying that 
Why was it weird? Because they usually don't talk because they don't really like each other. Okay. Was she bothered by these texts all of a sudden? She just seemed just annoyed by them. Like, why would he want to bother her at all? Uh-huh. What about Cody? Do you know him very well? Um, a little bit. Did he ever talk about Michaela? Only how annoying she was. Her voice just annoys me and stuff like that. Contrary to the impression Cody had given to the investigators during his interview, the reality was quite different regarding his relationship with Michaela. Both could not stand each other and were hardly cordial. Adding to this, the friend also disclosed a concerning offer that Cody made to Michaela on the day she mysteriously disappeared. Do you know what she meant by randomly texted her out of nowhere? Because her and Cody don't text. They don't even talk to each other. Okay, so it was real unusual to be getting texts from Cody. Okay. Um, why didn't she have a ride that day? Well, she didn't ask for a ride, but normally that's why I stay is so okay. that she can get a ride home. Given their history, it was strange for Cody to reach out to Michaela for help. Why had he offered her a ride back home? The investigating team interviewed Michaela's boyfriend, Javier, again to find out if he knew anything about the messages or the reason behind Cody's sudden change in behavior. What about Cody? Um, I don't know. Like, that was like, the first time she talked. Well, he started bothering her in like three years. Two months. Okay. You say bothering her. Two months prior, what was going on? He would annoy her and like try to talk to her and say hi and text her and stuff. And she'd tell him, like, leave me alone. I don't want you in my life. Like, I'm done with you. And I guess he didn't get it. And after she told him that, like, he stopped texting her and like trying to talk to her for like two or three months. And then after that, this happened. Um, did she tell you about those times or did you see the texts? Um, or? No, she would tell me that. She was annoying in that he would bother her. Uh-huh. She didn't feel comfortable. How come? Do you know? Well, I guess it's because they were dating like back in eighth grade or so. And I don't know, like he, he hurt her and he broke her heart. And mm-hmm. So did you see any of the texts that Cody sent to her? No, she didn't tell me anything. Okay. She would just tell me that like he would like go and visit her, like knock at her door at her house and just to say hi and leave or mm-hmm. try to talk to her. Mm-hmm. This is a clear red flag and sounds like obsessive and stalking behavior. In his attempt to mislead the investigation, Cody had deviously fabricated an elaborate lie by pointing towards Javier as a potential suspect in his interview. He had also pretended to show concern for Michaela by building false narratives about seeing her distressed and isolated on campus. Javier's interview also exposes a shocking truth. Tony wasn't the first girl Cody had allegedly assaulted. Did she ever tell you if uh, Cody ever hurt her physically? Um, no, she was talking about this one time in eighth grade when they were dating, I guess. She was talking to some of Cody's friends, and like, I guess they were out in front of her house or something, and I guess he got jealous or something, and he had this little knife, or I guess he accidentally cut her on her, her left shoulder or something. And who, who told you about that? She was telling me. Oh, she told yeah. you that? In, when did that happen? Around eighth grade. I'm not sure if it was like because he was, she was talking to his friends, his friends, or if it was an accident. Do you know if she told anybody else about that? No, I'm not sure. The police's doubts are confirmed with the arrival of the car analysis reports that suggest that the tire tracks and the dust on the car that Cody drove 
perfectly matched the desert where Michaela's body was found. But what rattles the investigators is the deeply unsettling revelation from the DNA samples, which confirmed that Michaela had been in that car on the day she'd been murdered. Armed with this array of compelling evidence, the police set up an interview with Cody to confront his web of lies. You told us that you thought that the boy she was with at 5.30 was her boyfriend. Correct. You gave us a description. However, it's not the same description that you told us, Javier, when you saw her at lunch. They don't match. No, I, you said didn't, I thought so. But you didn't say you thought that this boy was her boyfriend because he was wearing the same clothes that he was wearing at lunch. You didn't bother to tell us that. Story's not making sense there. That doesn't make sense. What do you mean? What do you mean? If you know him, you know him. Yeah. I mean, be pretty But he easy. was facing that way. As he continues to lie, officers confront him with Michaela's phone records. She didn't call you twice. Mickey didn't call you twice. That's what I recall. No. You sent more than two text messages to her. That's what I recall, no. You sent probably... Two or three. Five or six. Okay. Okay. That wasn't mud on Wendy's car. That was dust. Okay, so what are you getting at? What I'm getting at is you're, you're not being totally truthful with us. Yes, I am. No, you're not. I'm showing you some inconsistencies based upon your own statement and physical evidence that we have found. Okay, you're not being totally truthful with us. I went puddle bashing. No, that wasn't mud. I'm telling you. It's dust. It's dust on that back bumper. It's dust on the side of those that truck. It's not mud. Okay. okay. I don't know what to tell you. Cody continues to play innocent and feign ignorance. The officer then presents the car analysis reports and what they found on the school surveillance camera in an attempt to get him to confess. We found tire impressions at the scene. They match the avalanches tires, or trailblazer, I'm sorry. Okay. It shows the width is the same, the, the wheelbase is the same, tire pattern is the same. That trailblazer took her to that scene. So you're saying I did it's interesting that he's not getting upset here. An innocent person would be in disbelief or feel anger over being falsely accused of killing someone. Cody's response is much more in line with someone who is guilty. Remember, for a guilty person, it's important that the police like them because people are more likely to believe someone that they like over someone they dislike. While an innocent person can afford to be angry and emotional when wrongly accused, a guilty person needs to keep their cool so they can still try to look good to others and continue to talk their way out of the liar's loop. It's much harder to remain likable and convincing if they allow themselves to get angry or too upset. I think maybe you're not telling us the truth about what happened. I'm telling you what the physical evidence is showing us. All of it's pointing to you, okay? Now, the issue we have is the scenario of what happened with her. And... I'll be frank with you, it doesn't look good. What do you mean? Well, I'll tell you, the video from the school indicates to us that you were waiting for her, okay? Waiting for her to get done with track, okay? I wasn't. And that's why you walked by the, the girls' locker room three times. And you walked away from the girls' locker room three minutes before she left the locker room. That's exactly what happened. It's all on video, okay? Well, yeah, I told you I was in yeah. school. No, you told us you weren't in the school. You told us you weren't in the school at that time frame. You didn't give me a time frame. I did. Know. You gave me the time frame that you were in the school. So I can remember. Earlier, Cody used selective memory statements, 
and here we see them in action when he's confronted. Now he can deny withholding information because he already stated that I could remember. I mean, let's let's okay. be used hey, to it here. Listen, with listen to me. With a gun to your listen, head. It's like listen trying to, to me. remember everything. Listen to me. You have given more than enough detail right up until five o'clock, and right after seven o'clock. But between five and seven, you've got a serious lack of detail, and I think I know why. Okay, why? Because that was the time she disappeared, and that was the time she died. And you were involved. I wasn't involved in your death. I know you were now. Okay. How do you know I was now? Because you basically told us you were. Now this looks really bad for you, but I think we can get past this if you would just explain to us what happened. I did not touch Michaela. Listen, we know you have before. Have before what? We got witnesses. Witnesses say what? Well, about you grabbing her and choking her and choking Tony, and we know you do that. We know you have some anger issues. Me and Tony's issues are different. Yeah. Don't sit here and try to play on me and stuff. I'm not, not playing working. on you. I'm telling you the truth. Well, you're trying to twist my past to make it fit the scenario. I'm not twisting anything. Listen, you can either tell us what happened and be truthful with us, or we're just going to have to go with what we got, okay? And I don't want to do that because it's going to make you look very bad right now. Okay? I need you to be truthful with me. All these mistruths, all these it's untruthful statements, they are. Okay? You have been intentionally vague about, about several details. Or they're completely false statements. I haven't falsified yes, anything. you did. Okay? I haven't. You're you not have. me. I have not falsified anything. But you did. Okay? That wasn't mud on that truck. It was dust. Dust that matches out at the gravel pit. Okay? Overwhelmed by the undeniable evidence arrayed against him, Cody eventually buckles and changes his statement about his last meeting with Michaela and makes a shocking revelation. Tell us. Can we turn it off? I'll tell you two things about me. It's nothing that probably has anything to do with it. It's just, it's personal. I understand that, okay? And I understand it might be embarrassing to you or it might be very intimate to you, but we can't, okay? Because we have to be accurate here. Because if we turn it off and then we say you said something, the judge is going to go, well, why'd you turn it off? Unless you were going to lie to us about what happened. You know? The reason I started talking with Michaela was she told me at lunch today at school that she loved me. She just wanted to start talking again. And that's what all her phone calls and stuff for. And she said she wanted to ride home. And I said, okay, that's fine. So I gave her a ride home. I loaded what was left of my parts into the car and gave her a ride to the house. And I dropped her off and I went home. And she was texting me, and I texted her back, and she said she wanted to hang out. I said, okay. So I went down, and I left the car at my house, and I just walked down there, and we were talking, and then I went back home because her mom had called her or something and was wondering where she was at, and she didn't want her mom to know that we were talking again and her boyfriend to find out. I didn't want to cause anything with Tony. I mean, I'd never cheated. I just was talking to her, and she said she wanted to go out driving around. So we went out to the gravel pit, and she started arguing with me and stuff. And she was just let me out, and I, I let her out, and just one other truck out there, that was it. And I turned around and left. When presented with evidence he can't deny, Cody now integrates those pieces into his new story. He's careful to mention that there was another truck there to throw suspicion on someone else, a tactic he's been using since his first interview. Guilty people will often keep volunteering information to look extra helpful or honest, 
and to give the police another suspect other than themselves to look at. Officers are definitely going to see red flags and are going to dig further. And that was the last time I saw her. And then everybody told me she went missing, and I got scared because I knew people were playing me. There was a big step, Cody. That's much closer to the truth. You're not telling us anything we don't know. Last time I saw her. You're doing the right thing now. But I never made a hand on it. Cody. There are no other footprints or tire tracks out there. Just yours. I don't. These are my shoes. I got boots. I got mountain shoes. This is it. I did not kill Michaela Stato. I don't think you did. I don't think you planned on it. I don't think you intended it. I didn't. I think she got hurt. And I think you panicked. I didn't do anything. I simply got pissed off and left. I didn't yell. I didn't do nothing. She just said, let her out. I let her out. What'd you fight about? About Tony. She wanted me to leave Tony for her. And I said, no, because I'm not going to leave Tony. What changed Thursday? Why did... I don't know. I've always just said hi to her every once in a while. Never really talked to her ever since Alex left. But she just, one day, she, she'd been fighting her boyfriend for a while. What time did you go back to your house and get the trailblazer? I don't know. I don't know. And, and then you went to her apartment and picked her up? I've, picked her up on the back side of the fence of uh, like the road and then there's a fence and then there's a trailer parked up like right here. And then you drove straight to the gravel pit. We went up past the golf course and drew a little dirt road thingy in on the uh, the old exit and then we were just kind of going down that road and we went out there and we were talking along the way and she started bringing up Tony and we just kind of was like, not mad, but just like, I don't, I told her, I was like, I'm not gonna leave Tony, I'm not, I don't wanna talk about it. I told her, I was like, I really appreciate that you love me, I really do, but I'm not leaving Tony. And she goes, then let me the f out. And I said, what is your problem? And she goes, I'm not gonna be around you if, if you're gonna still be with her then. And I said, okay, fine, whatever, then get the f out. She got out and I peeled out and turned around and left. Where did she get out? Her, uh, we went past a big tank that's out there a little ways, and that was it. What side of the road was the tank on? Right side. How far past the tank did she get out? Half a football field, football field and a half. I don't know. That doesn't sound like something you would do, Cody, and just leave her stranded out there. I know she runs track and everything, but that's a long way from town. When she had texted me, she said not to come back. That wouldn't be safe for her. I waited at the top of the thing and then saw her walking towards, so I said whatever, and I left. What time did she text you to tell you not to come back? I don't know. Maybe two minutes after dropping her. And there was a truck out there, so I figured somebody would pick her up and bring her back to town, because it looked like a railroad truck. Cody, that's not, that's not the entire truth, but... You know we have your phone records and her phone records. And the text stopped well before that. Her text stopped five minutes before she leaves the school. You are on the right track, Cody. I'm not lying. You are. You're not being totally truthful. I didn't kill her. Cody, you are on the right track, okay? And you've made a huge step. I did not kill her. As Cody's will begins to break, the inconsistencies within his statement become increasingly obvious. At first, he admitted to dropping Michaela off at her house, but then he changed his story by sharing that he'd driven her to the gravel pit and left her in the desert after a heated argument. As the officer rapidly identifies the flaws in his fabricated tales, Cody eventually crumbles under the weight of the pressure.
I just want to see my family. What are you going to tell them? Are you going to tell them the truth about what happened? I want to, Brenda. I know you want to. <laughs> this isn't easy. Personally, I think they need to know, okay? Because you're their son. They need to know the truth. Do you want us to help you tell them? I just want to be with them for a little bit. I understand that. And, and we'll do our best to make that happen. On the brink of uncovering the truth, the interrogators decides to take a gamble by summoning Cody's father to the station, hopeful that he might assist in eliciting a confession from his son. A short while after the officers leave the father and son alone in the room, Cody breaks down. You gotta start fixing this now as much as you can. It's not about us anymore. What you did is heinous, Cody. No, I know you want to be with your family, and I want to be with you. There's something wrong, man. I want to be near you as much as I can. I don't want to abandon you at all. Okay? We got to do what's right for the game as well. You've got to go all the way with this. You need to put it to bed as quickly as you can. You can get out of this town. You know what that means? You've got to just do what they need you to do. And you know what I'm saying? You've got to do a written statement or whatever it is they need so that this can be done. Right now, we are getting our answers. They need their answers. The family needs their answers. What do you think that happened to you guys? Cody. What? You know what I'm saying? Nothing's going to happen to us tonight. I mean, Jesus Christ. This is it, man. This community can't do anything else to me. We have to fix that. Do you understand that? You did something that I don't. You've got to think about it. I I don't. In his confession, Cody reveals the horrifying details of what had really transpired that night. There's something not quite right with this story, though the truth would eventually come to light. All right, Cody. You know, I know you told your dad a lot of what happened. So the question we've been asking, tell us what happened. Leave it through. Driving out there, and she started bringing up about how you should get together and all this stuff. And I said, I'm not going to leave Tony. She started getting upset. I started getting upset, too. And I said, it's not going to happen. Stop asking. And then she said, stop the car, and we got out. I said, what the hell are you doing? I was like, at least let me take you back to town. And she goes, no, and started yelling at me and pounding on my chest and stuff. And I was just kind of pushing her away at first, and then she kind of hit me, just kind of clipped me on the head, and it kind of hurt. But I just really, a good shove, and she fell back and hit the back bumper of the car, and she had moved for a minute. And I started saying, Mickey, it's not funny. Get up. I'm sorry, Pushy. It's not funny anymore. She started coming around, so I got down by her side and helped out. And I, I said, are you okay? And she goes, where, where am I at? I said, Mickey, come on. You were the same place we was. We are fighting. She stood up, and she goes, you're trying to hurt me, huh? And she starts yelling, and I was like, you're crazy. I'm not trying to hurt you. All I did was push you. And she continues to start pounding on my chest. Finally, I said, Michaela, enough. And I shoved her pretty hard and she fell down and hit her head. And she just laid there and was looking at the sky. And like her eyes started to turn black. She started to like shake and seize. And I looked at where she was at. There's this big rock she had hit her head on. And they tried to pick her up and 
put her in the car and she kept moving and moving and I tried to like check her pulse and stuff and I couldn't get anything and she was flopping and so I had to shovel from prying on my car and I hit her, tried to hit her on her head, tried to just knock her out and it hit like right here and it broke up pretty bad. She started making this awful sound. So I took the dagger thingy and pushed it right here and the end of it hit her chin and it split it open and she started growing more and making this sound and she would have stopped so I pushed it right here and then she stopped. I didn't know what to do. I was going to call my dad, but I knew he would freak out. I tried to take her clothes off to put her in the little grave thing I dug because I figured her body would decompose faster without clothes. So I covered her up and I took the clothes over in the gravel pit area and burned them, but I couldn't get the pants undone and I didn't want to disrespect her, so I put her sweater over, over her. This is an interesting line he's drawing here. He claims he didn't want to disrespect her, but has just killed her. It's clear he's trying to paint himself in a better light, but it's not working. I panicked. I just covered it up really quick and put bushes over it and left. I sat there for like two hours before I went and got to him. Cried my brains out. I was so scared. So I just walked out and cleaned myself up and wiped the shovel off in the dirt. Even while recounting what he did to Michaela, Cody talks about how scared he was. He only places emphasis on himself. He doesn't feel bad that he just brutally ended someone's life and left her in the desert. He doesn't express remorse for doing this. He's just scared for himself. This is classic self-centered thinking associated with antisocial personality disorder. I went and got Tony and she, she asked what was wrong and I said nothing. I went and got food. Then we went to my cousin. Now, you said you cut her on the neck? Yes, sir. And that was with the shovel? Yeah. I think it looks like that. The blade part? The... Yeah, I tried to go like that, and it didn't work, and that's when I pulled the... It's an E-tool, an entrenching tool, a military yeah, yeah, shovel. Yeah. And when you fold it in half, it's got like a pokey spike on, yeah, yeah, on yeah. the opposite end of the blade. Yeah, shovel. I just went like that. Shovel blade. And it, that's when it, it like made this pop sound, and it... That's when she really made a horrible sound, but I can't get out of my head. My dad said they're crying. It's not the exact same. I'm going to be sick. Cody's chilling admission of Michaela's cold-blooded murder leaves everyone stunned into silence. However, even with his confession, the detectives identify that certain aspects of his story seem out of place. How did zip tie get on her arm? What happened there? I was just going to zip tie her up and try to put her in the car and take her out to the dump and just dump her out there. But I couldn't do it. I couldn't bring myself to do it. I just put it on her like, and I just sat there screaming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was so... So angry and so sad, I didn't know what to do. I sat there, I was like, hold like this on it. I said, why did you just listen to me? Um, you said you tried to take her clothes off, but her sweatshirt was still on her. And, and I noticed the sleeves, the little bands, was still on her wrist. How'd you try and get her clothes off? Did you try and yeah, cut them off? The shovel, it's got a serrated edge on it. Okay. And I was trying to cut it with that, and it kept getting caught. So I just cut it, and then I pulled it. 
she was sitting on her arms and I just was trying to pull them and then when it tore one of them, I just panicked. I just started mm-hmm. like that, trying to cut them. You said you started a fire and, and... I just burned her shirts. Anything else? Her shirts and her, her sports bra thingy, and that was it. The police arrest Cody soon after his confession. Based on the statements gathered from Michaela's friends, they suspect that Cody may have wanted to get back together with Michaela, but killed her after she'd rejected him. But despite all the evidence corroborating Cody's confession, something seemed amiss. There was a gap in the narrative that prompted police to believe that there was more beneath the surface waiting to be uncovered. Following Cody's arrest, he spoke to his father over the phone, and it appears he isn't aware these calls are recorded. Though he gave a glimpse of his temper during interrogation, it's in these calls that the other side of Cody truly shows. This has a ripple effect, okay? We just happen to be the ones that are closest to you, and it's not easy. I can tell you that. It's not easy. It's not easy for me. I have nobody. You guys got each other. I've got nobody to turn to. I mean, I could call you guys, but it still doesn't do it justice. Cody, I'm having a hard time with this conversation. I mean, you know, what about Michaela's decisions? What about, you know? You don't think I don't think about it? spoke to Tony, giving us an interesting look into the dynamics of their relationship. Who you picking up your mom? I am. She's um, picking out. Um, she was just to come on the Protect yourself every day, okay? No matter what happens. Yeah, me too. Why does it seem like you guys have an attitude or something? I'm not. Who the talk to me? I can't. It doesn't matter anymore. It's all public information. The fucking news. Everybody was there. Are you going to talk to me or not? Because if not, I'm just going to make up and stop wasting my goddamn time. You be so upset. How am I supposed to not be upset? Be strong. Talk to me. I don't what to say. Maybe you can say, oh, you know what, being this might be the last time I talk to you. Oh, um, you know, thank you for everything. I love you, you know. I'm glad you pushed me through my life and got me this far. Anything? 
Not just be strong. Do appreciate everything. The investigator's hunch about there being more to this twisted story is finally confirmed three weeks after Cody's arrest when Tony meets with his attorney and makes a shocking request. Can I ask a question real quick? Sure. Will you guys be able to represent me? Depending on what you're going to say, we may or may not be able to. If your interest conflict with Cody, if we are not able to represent you, we will get a counsel for you. Okay. The question is, why is Tony looking into getting legal counsel? You'll recall that Cody didn't mention her having anything to do with what happened to Michaela. Yet Tony has been hiding something. It seems she doesn't realize her conversation with the attorney is being recorded. What happened? What caused you to leave? I got in a text saying that he had her and she wanted to talk, but he wanted me with her. continued to listen, utterly absorbed in shock, while Tony accidentally implicates herself in the crime. What did you say was going on? 
really was on her ground. And then I had asked Katie what happened, and she just said that she kept pushing me and everything. So I kind of pushed her off to get her off of me, and she walked her down to trip on something. I can't remember exactly, and he hit her face on the car. A little bit. What did you see? Just that she was on the ground and she wasn't really moving at that point. I couldn't really tell at that point. I was just kind of freaking out and everything from there on out was kind of a blow to me. I remember not moving or anything. So, you know, we were freaking out. We didn't know what to do. And I got out the shovel and started digging a hole. And then it kind of went downhill from there. I wasn't really thinking. And so we basically started kicking it and punching her in. Kind of on like her rib area and like the side of her face. She was kind of laying down, kind of trying to kind of sit up and everything, but she was very coherent of what was going on. She was trying to sit up. At that point, she kind of was. And then I remember I was picking a shovel and hitting her. Kind of in the back area. Did you hit it with the flat part of the shoulder or the edge part of the shoulder? I believe the flat part. At that point, she was just kind of laying there. She wasn't moving. And so we moved her, moved her to the grave. They were kind of standing there deciding what do we do. But I remember like sitting down her legs and we had to her throat. We had to cut her throat. You heard that right. Not only did both Tony and Cody attack Michaela, but they both had an opportunity to save her and chose not to. How did you do that? That's a knife. Cody's knife. It was a knife that Cody always held on to. It was always with him, no matter what. started as a witness account soon morphed into the bone-chilling confession of a murder. Tony's confession also dispelled the doubts about the murder weapon, confirming it as a knife, contrary to Cody's earlier claim of it being a shovel in his confession. Cody's attorney asks one last question about Tony's motive in taking Michaela's life. Were you mad at Michaela? I guess I was kind of frustrated, but I wasn't mad at her. Okay, so what happened? I remember it was kind of dark by that that point, and we had basically buried her, and they went to the other gravel pit on the other side of town. Okay, and what did you do there? We burnt everything. I think there was a bag of things that we burned. I couldn't tell you exactly what was in there. After that, then to McDonald's to get drinks. 
What wasn't clear was why Tony had admitted to her involvement despite Cody never implicating her in his confession. It's impossible to know, but Tony may have confessed to her role in the crime, hoping that she could save her fiancé from the death penalty. Following the unexpected development, Cody's legal team promptly informs the investigators about Tony's admission of guilt, leading to her subsequent arrest. Investigators soon recover all of Michaela's possessions that Cody and Tony admitted to burning and burying in the desert after killing her, along with the shovel. At this stage, the case seemed almost ready to be closed. Nevertheless, a lingering uneasiness remained. Despite Cody and Tony characterizing Michaela's murder as spontaneous and spur of the moment, there was a nagging suspicion that something about this narrative just didn't sit quite right. While the investigating team tried to do their best to find that missing piece, in a shocking twist, Cody turns on Tony when he allows his legal team to employ a private investigator to gather additional evidence against Tony in a bid to secure a reduced sentence for himself. In a pivotal breakthrough, the private detective uncovers the elusive missing element. Inside a box found in Tony's bedroom, the investigators discover that Tony was obsessed with Michaela and feared that Cody would leave her for Michaela. Several diary entries exposed Tony's deep-seated insecurities and exposed her extreme hatred towards Michaela. One entry read, We might as well break up so that he can get back together with her. She lives closer to him. While another stated, I know in my heart he doesn't love me. I just feel that if I didn't get in between Cody and Mickey, they would still be together and none of this would have ever happened. In a final twist, this facade of true love crumbles into a climax that can only be labeled as the last act of betrayal. While Tony and Cody both admit to the murder, none claim responsibility for using the knife on Michaela's throat and instead blame it on each other. No one can confirm what really happened in that desert between the three on the evening of Michaela's death. However, Tony's diary entries cement her motive to end Michaela's life, and it's been speculated that she may have instigated Cody to do so. Given the evidence, investigators believe that the pair bound Michaela's wrists and then proceeded to take her life. Eventually, Tony takes a plea deal for a lesser charge of second-degree murder, she testifies in court against Cody and claims that he abused her and actually forced her to commit the heinous crime, stating that she only hit Michaela with the shovel because Cody told her to do it. In May 2012, Cody Patton pled guilty to the first-degree murder charge of Michaela Constanzo and was sentenced to life without parole, while Tony Fratto was sentenced to life with a possibility of parole after 18 years. As of August 2018, Cody was incarcerated in Ely State Prison in White Pine County, Nevada. On February 24th of 2021, Tony was denied parole a decade after Michaela's tragic death. Her next parole hearing is in May 2024.